Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, December 14th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's top headlines. Former FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried is arrested in the Bahamas. The EU breaks a stalemate with Hungary and agrees to 18 billion euro in aid for Ukraine. The U.S. Senate looks to avert a government shutdown. Bangladesh arrests the leader of the largest Muslim party. Bolsonaro supporters attack police headquarters in Brazil. China takes action against U.S. chip curbs with the World Trade Organization. Alabama and Utah ban the use of TikTok on state government devices. Official data shows that the U.K. saw its greatest number of strikes since 2011 in October. Moderna and Merck have some success with a cancer vaccine. And Israel gene edits hens to lay only female eggs. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried is arrested and charged. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Forbes, USA Today, TechCrunch, The New York Post, and Fox News. On Monday, the founder of crypto exchange FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, was arrested in the Bahamas for financial offenses against laws in the U.S. and the Bahamas. He has been charged by the U.S. government with one of the biggest financial frauds in U.S. history and violating campaign finance laws. Bankman-Fried was scheduled to testify before the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Financial Services on Tuesday prior to his arrest. A draft copy of his testimony began, I would like to start by formally stating under oath, I f***ed up. FTX was a global company with more than 130 affiliates that allowed investors to trade cryptocurrencies, expanding to be the third largest exchange by volume. The company's commercials featured celebrities and its logo appeared on an NBA stadium and baseball umpire uniforms. In a statement, Bahamian Prime Minister Philip Davis said, The Bahamas and the United States have a shared interest in holding accountable all individuals associated with FTX who may have betrayed the public trust and broken the law. Federal prosecutors have reportedly been scrutinizing how FTX managed customer funds and the alleged transfer of hundreds of millions of dollars from the U.S. to the Bahamas around the time of the bankruptcy filing. They were also said to be probing whether Bankman-Fried manipulated crypto markets by directing trades that led to the meltdown of the TerraUSD cryptocurrency earlier this year. Bankman-Fried is charged with eight U.S. crimes, including wire fraud and money laundering. FTX's current chief executive, John Ray III, told the congressional hearing, we will never get all these assets back. On this show, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins, starting with Narrative A from The Hill. FTX was seen as one of the more reputable firms in the crypto world, and its founder was considered a Capitol Hill darling, having donated millions to political campaigns and helped write legislation around cryptocurrencies. This shocking twist, which will have ripple effects across the crypto world, brings all that into question and renews calls for more regulation of this Wild West financial space. And Narrative B comes from Markets Insider. All of these problems stem from the lack of clarity provided by U.S. legislators, which has driven 95% of the crypto market offshore. 
They are now largely powerless to retrieve the funds, and it makes no sense to further punish U.S. crypto companies for their mistakes with a regulatory crackdown. U.S. policymakers need to own the consequences of their actions. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 50% chance that Sam Bankman-Fried will be sentenced to at least 108 months in prison before the year 2026. I think there was a missed opportunity in this heist situation to wire the money to the Bahamas, then disappear to a different island or or even better, like embed himself in some kind of city and then have the money be like uh, a ghost transfer over to Switzerland and then over to Fiji. There was a lot of plotting that got missed where he really could have gotten away with this and been sitting on an island. Uh, I What I would do is hide somewhere with bad weather and they would never find me. Like everyone goes to... Uh, some island paradise, you know, I'll be in, uh, I'll be in the Yukon territory or something and then they'll just leave me there. They'll leave you alone. Right. Right. And now our daily roundup of the conflict in the Ukraine as we reach day 293 of the fighting where the EU agrees to 18 billion euro in Ukraine aid. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg, U.S. News and World Report, the Associated Press, Guardian, TASS and Ukraine Forum. EU countries on Monday confirmed they will be sending an 18 billion euro or 19 billion American dollars aid package to Ukraine and that the funds will be delivered from the European Commission budget next year. Hungary had blocked the package, which requires approval from all 27 EU member states due to EU concerns about corruption in Hungary. Under the new agreement, the EU will release more funds to Hungary if it makes progress on corruption indicators. The news came as U.S. officials told Reuters that roughly $13 million of power equipment has now been delivered to Ukraine, with another source telling the outlet that two more plane loads would leave from the U.S. this week. Meanwhile, dozens of countries and international organizations met in Paris on Tuesday to raise further funds and help coordinate the delivery of supplies to Ukraine as the nation continues to struggle with heat and power shortages. Opening the conference, French President Emmanuel Macron said Russia's attacks on civilian infrastructure were a war crime. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky also renewed calls to Western leaders for advanced weaponry, pressing them to provide long-range missiles, modern tanks, and other high-tech air defense systems. Elsewhere, Russian President Vladimir Putin has reportedly canceled an annual press conference for the first time in a decade. While some downplayed the announcement, others said Putin wanted to avoid criticism and awkward questions over his faltering campaign in Ukraine. On the ground, fighting remained heaviest in the region of Donetsk, where pro-Russia officials claimed to have surrounded the small city of Marienka, just west of Donetsk City. Ukrainian officials said three civilians were killed and 16 were injured in Russian attacks over the last day, while pro-Russia officials said five civilians were killed in Ukrainian attacks in the same time period. Further Russian attacks were also recorded in Kherson, where three civilians were killed and 15 were injured, and in Zaporizhia, where one civilian died. One injury was recorded in Mykolaiv, while Sumy and Dnipropetrovsk were also struck without reports of civilian casualties at this stage. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. On the story, we've got several narrative spins. We'll start with a pro-establishment narrative from CNBC. 
Russia's deliberate targeting of energy infrastructure, unnecessarily increasing the suffering of civilians, amounts to war crimes. This continuing Russian barbarity must be confronted. And a pro-Russia narrative comes from TASS. Attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure are a direct consequence of the failure of the country's leadership to meaningfully engage in peace talks and thinking they can defeat Russia on the battlefield. These attacks will stop once a more sober position is reached. And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative saying there's a 50% chance that there will be at least 7.75 million internally displaced Ukrainians by the end of 2022. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. The U.S. Senate looks to avert a government shutdown. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, NBC, CNN, and The Wall Street Journal. The U.S. Senate is hoping to pass a bill known as a continuing resolution to allow the federal government to continue operating for one week past a Friday deadline and provide the additional time needed for Congress to pass an omnibus bill to fund the government through September 2023. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, said over the weekend appropriators held positive and productive conversations, enough that both sides are moving forward in good faith to reach a deal. He added that the Senate should prepare a full funding bill before the holidays. The National Defense Authorization Act, an annual bill that determines defense spending, is targeted to be passed by year's end. The bill is expected to see a vote this week in the Senate and is expected to pass with bipartisan support. The deadlock on the federal government's budget has become an annual fight, with the budget supposed to be enacted on October 1st when the government's new fiscal year begins. As of last week, Senator Richard Shelby, Republican of Alabama, told reporters that the gap between both parties totaled $25 billion, only 1.7 percent of last year's spending. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, said that if Democrats can accept less non-defense spending money, there is a chance that a deal can be reached. However, if the Democrats are unwilling to accept it, there will likely be a short funding bill that will carry into early next year. If an omnibus bill isn't passed this year, the next opportunity will come in January when Republicans are set to regain control of the House giving the GOP more leverage when negotiating defense versus non-defense spending. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a Republican narrative spin on this story coming from The Federalist. Over the past two years, Democrats have had plenty of time to push through trillions of dollars in wasteful spending to satisfy their donors, so there's no reason for the GOP to partner with its liberal colleagues except to pass a stopgap bill. When Republicans take control of the House next month, they'll be able to allocate the funds appropriately for both defense and prudent social programs. And where there's a Republican, there's a Democratic narrative, and that comes from government executive. The Democrats are trying hard to reach their colleagues across the aisle to resolve this challenge in the best interest of the country. So if no agreement is reached, it will be a tragedy with the GOP to blame. A shutdown would lead to many agencies suffering, including the Veterans Affairs Department, Federal Aviation Administration, Customs and Border Protection, and the Defense Department, all of which are crucial to Americans. I, you know, Scott, I'm pleased to see them calling each other colleagues. 
Yeah, I guess the first step is to acknowledge that the other side is human and not some sort of like silicon-based bacterial life form, right? <laughs> right, evil bacterial life form. Bangladesh arrests the leader of the largest Muslim party. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Times of India, Ari News, and Geo News. Days after announcing his party would join opposition-led protests calling for the resignation of Bangladesh Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina, the leader of the country's largest Muslim faction, Shafiqur Rahman of the Jamaat-e-Islami, or Jamaat Party, was arrested on Tuesday. The 64-year-old was arrested by counter-terrorism officers, though Metropolitan Police spokesman Farooq Ahmed didn't elaborate on the charges. Jamaat, the nation's third-largest party overall, has been banned from contesting elections since 2012. Jamaat was a major ally of the lead opposition Bangladesh Nationalist Party, or BNP, for years before Hasina came to power in 2009, after which Jamaat's entire leadership was arrested and tried for war crimes, dating back to the country's 1971 independence war against Pakistan. Five of the party's leaders were later hanged between 2013 and 2016, after being convicted in a war crimes court, with Jamaat labeling the executions politically motivated. Hundreds were reportedly killed and thousands detained during subsequent protests against the hangings. Rahman's son, Rafat Sadiq Saifullah, was also detained last month on extremism charges. The arrests come amid a continuing crackdown on BNP leaders and supporters protesting the government as the country faces soaring fuel prices and cost of living. The BNP has also called for Hasina to step down, arguing that a credible vote under her regime is impossible after she was accused of rigging the past two elections in 2014 and 2018. Western governments and the UN have expressed concerns over the political climate in one of Asia's fastest growing economies. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. We'll start these narrative spins with the pro-establishment narrative. This comes from DW. When Bangladesh's elections were monitored by a nonpartisan third party, they were deemed free and fair. But ever since that system ended in 2011, the general consensus is that elections have been shady. Prime Minister Hasina's ruling Awami League party seems to be operating under an authoritarian power retention mindset, which is why the world is calling on them to bring back that system and stop criminalizing the opposition. And we have an establishment-critical narrative from modern diplomacy. Just as Bangladesh doesn't recommend which parties should run for office in the U.S. and other Western states, Western diplomats should stay out of Dhaka's domestic affairs. These self-proclaimed preachers of democracy have ignored Bangladesh's economic and political prosperity and at the very least should keep their thoughts on Bengali party politics to themselves. Turning our attention to Brazil, Bolsonaro supporters attack police headquarters. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Folha, BBC News, Al Jazeera, Reuters, Bloomberg, and The Guardian. On Monday, violent unrest broke out in several points of Brasilia, including in front of the federal police headquarters, after Justice Alexandre de Moraes issued an arrest warrant against pro-Bolsonaro indigenous leader José Asasio Sorere Chavante at the request of the prosecutor general. 
Police stated that protesters lit vehicles on fire, blocked roads, and attempted to invade the federal police building, where Serere Chavante was being held for allegedly inciting people to try to abolish the rule of law and to impede the swearing-in of the president and vice president-elect. These clashes also came after Luis Inacio Lula da Silva was certified as the country's next president after winning a closely-fought election runoff on October 30th. Despite not explicitly conceding defeat, outgoing President Jair Bolsonaro has authorized the transition process to go ahead. Hundreds of Bolsonaro supporters gathered outside the presidential residence on Monday afternoon to call for military intervention, claiming the election was rigged. Bolsonaro joined them for a public prayer but didn't address the crowd. On Friday, he told supporters that the armed forces are the last standing barrier to socialism in Brazil, adding that the military is loyal to the people. Last month, his liberal party sought to annul votes, but the case backfired as the court fined it for allegations made in bad faith. The outbreak of violence, which reportedly subsided on Tuesday, has sparked concerns about further upheaval in the lead-up to Lula's inauguration on January 1st, an event expected to be attended by thousands of his supporters. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a left narrative from Al Jazeera. Bolsonaro has repeatedly incited violence against anyone who doesn't blindly support his government. Since losing the 2022 election, his supporters have wreaked havoc. What Brazil desperately needs is a de-radicalization process that will only ever truly be completed if Bolsonaro and his followers are held accountable for their actions. And the right narrative comes from Fox News. These protests reflect widespread doubts in Brazil, as the corrupt Lula is set to return to office by a narrow margin of support over Bolsonaro. Brazilian institutions are to blame for this distrust, as they have screened questions about both the electoral process and results. It's as if they were trying to hide something while failing to make the country's electoral system auditable. And we have another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there is a 1% chance that Bolsonaro will successfully stage a coup by January of 2023. Ever been to Brazil? No, but I hope to go. I've never been either. I, I want. I definitely want to go. I, there's so much to see. Like, I think you need a guide for the Amazon, yep. and then you need to take your your um, your party friend to Carnival. I mean, you of need course. someone taking you through that too, so you don't so you don't die. <laughs> right. Probably a different person for both of those oh, things. For yeah. sure, for yeah. sure, different person, uh, and then someone just to take you uh, to Bahia to the beach and learn some capoeira. Oh my gosh, it sounds amazing. Yeah, it's a good vacation. And now news from the WTO as China takes action against U.S. computer chip curbs. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Straits Times, China Daily, the Investment Monitor, Reuters, and CNN. On Monday, China formally filed a legal request for consultations at the World Trade Organization, or WTO, against the U.S., over its move to block sales of advanced chips and chip-making equipment without a license to Chinese firms. Previously, the Biden administration in October announced various chip export control measures. However, China claims the changes obstruct international trade and threaten the stability of the global industrial supply chains. Calling the U.S. measures a typical practice of trade protectionism, the PRC's Commerce Ministry accused the U.S. of blocking the country's advancement 
in the semiconductor industry. The legal action was filed to defend its legitimate rights and interests, the ministry added. Meanwhile, the U.S. is in dialogue with Japan and the Netherlands to cooperate with its chip-related curbs on China. To counter U.S. moves, China is taking a step towards self-sufficiency and is working on a more than $143 billion package to support its semiconductor industry. A joint report by the Semiconductor Industry Association and the Boston Consulting Group estimates that the semiconductor industry will double in size to more than $1 trillion by 2030, and China will account for approximately 60% of that growth. Currently, China consumes about 40% of global chip demand each year. Thank you, Scott. We'll start this round with a pro-China narrative coming from the South China Morning Post. The U.S. can only ban the sale of technology or equipment, not the free flow of global tech talent to China. So it will be virtually impossible to contain China's rise and emergence as a stronger power than the U.S. If the intention of these export control measures is to make it harder for China to become a global leader in artificial intelligence and semiconductors, it's bound to backfire. And an anti-China narrative comes from The Atlantic. The U.S. is having a rational response to heightened geopolitical threats and the role of emerging technologies in advanced weapons systems. It would be foolish to expect the U.S. to continue supplying its own and allied technologies at the cost of national security and help China reach its goal of upgrading its military capabilities. Even if the ban on semiconductor exports to China sets off a geopolitical quake, it's worth it. Alabama and Utah ban TikTok for state government use. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Washington Examiner, The Alabama Media Group, and The New York Post. On Monday, Alabama and Utah became the latest U.S. states to ban the use of Chinese-owned TikTok on state government devices and computer networks because of reported national security concerns. These latest bans come amid warnings from FBI Director Chris Wray, who last month said that the Chinese government could potentially collect data from its millions of U.S. users or use the recommendation algorithm to conduct influence operations. In addition to banning the download of the app on state devices, Utah Republican Governor Spencer Cox's executive order also said an agency may not sponsor content on TikTok or maintain an agency-branded or agency-sponsored TikTok account. Similar bans have taken place in Nebraska, South Dakota, South Carolina, Texas, Maryland, and Oklahoma in recent months. Since its founding in 2018, TikTok which is owned by Chinese company ByteDance, has drawn the concern of U.S. lawmakers. ByteDance was fined by the U.S. Federal Trade Commission over its collection of data from children, and in 2020, then-President Donald Trump unsuccessfully tried to ban the app. A TikTok spokesperson reacted to the bans in Utah and Alabama in a statement saying, We're disappointed that so many states are jumping on the bandwagon to enact policies based on unfounded, politically charged falsehoods about TikTok. Other states are considering a similar ban, with New York lawmakers recently proposing a bill to ban its state employees and contractors from downloading the application. We've got some politically charged narratives on this story. The Republican narrative comes from the Daily Wire. As long as the PRC has enough influence over companies to force them to provide it with any requested data, it's important to keep TikTok off as many American devices as possible. 
These state government level bans in places mostly run by Republicans are the best way to protect personal safety and national security, and an all-out federal ban should be on Congress's agenda in the near future. Here's the Democratic narrative, written by Investors Business Daily. The Biden administration has a more prudent approach, negotiating with ByteDance to address national security concerns. While Republicans see this issue as a way to criticize Biden's China policies, the reality is that the social media platform is extremely popular nationwide with Gen Z voters. And Ars Technica brings us an establishment critical narrative. TikTok's rising popularity and rapid growth pose an existential threat to Western big tech. These bans are just the latest in a long and well-documented smear campaign against the company. So let's say, let's say that TikTok is an influential Chinese thing that's a big part of the lives of many Americans. Isn't that what other countries have been dealing with, with our blue jeans and rock and roll for like a hundred years? Like, <laughs> you know, okay, like. But the difference is that the blue jeans and rock and roll weren't stealing our information. I guess so. Yeah. But we hey, theoretically. We weren't reading the fannies and of, of every person who puts them on or were we? Oh, <laughs> Call Christopher Nolan. We got, another, we got another one. Reverse blue jeans. Yes, right. Fanny Scanner. Yeah. Fanny Scanner. <laughs> Starring Christian Bale. I love it. Our next story concerns the UK, where this past October they saw the greatest number of strikes since 2011. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, CNN, The Financial Times, and Metro News. The United Kingdom, hit by widespread industrial action this year as workers walk out over pay and conditions, recorded a total of 417,000 working days lost due to labor disputes in October, the highest figure since November of 2011. Workers across a range of sectors have gone on strike in recent months, including rail workers, teachers, postal staff, and lawyers, as inflation, which hit a 41-year high of 11.1% in October, continues to squeeze household budgets. This is expected to continue as approximately 100,000 members of the Royal College of Nursing, or RCN, are set to walk out across England, Wales, and Northern Ireland on December 15th in the first of two days of strikes this month to protest poor pay and working conditions. They plan to walk out again on December 20th. Earlier this year, the government offered a pay rise of 4.3% for nurses, but it was rejected by the RCN, which is demanding a 19% increase, a 5% uplift on inflation of 14%, as measured by October's retail price index. Meanwhile, a four-day railway strike began on Tuesday, which is expected to leave Britons faced with travel disruptions into Sunday. There will also be another major disruption of the railway system in the first week of 2023. Cabinet Minister Oliver Dowden said the government cannot eliminate the risk of a wave of strikes this month. While Downing Street has said that the £28 billion cost of granting an 11% salary increase, in parallel with inflation, would be unaffordable. Thank you for the facts, Scott. We've got a right narrative spin. It's coming from The Spectator. What the UK requires is the firm hand of government to smack down the strikers. 
Instead of feebly expressing its disappointment, the current administration must take a page out of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher's book by declaring a state of emergency and outlawing strike action in public services. Failure to do so will result in a paralyzed nation, not only disrupting the Christmas festivities, but also endangering people's lives. And the Tribune brings us the left narrative spin. The strikers represent the only resistance to a never-ending assault on pay, public services, and the health and safety of the masses. The NHS has seen a mass exodus due to privatization, terrible pay, and ever-worsening conditions, resulting in a dangerous deterioration in its quality of care. Meanwhile, the publicly subsidized rail network system has become prohibitively expensive and will become increasingly unsafe due to staff cuts. If the ruling class and their stooges in the government get their way, everyone will lose. And there's a nerd narrative on this story. There's a 50% chance that the UK will hold its next general election by March 2024. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. You ever been to England or the UK? I have. I've, I've been to London. How was it? It was lovely. I had a great time. I was 20 years old, which, you know, one year ahead of the drinking age in uh, in the mm. U.S. So you can imagine that fueled. Got to go overseas. Yeah. Yeah. That, <laughs> that fueled a little bit of our fun. Uh, and it was a great time. And I do remember some of it. <laughs> it made it so much more fun that you weren't supposed to be doing it, didn't it? it was just. It was I mean, so that's not why I, I went there, but no, it was like but- perk. I wish someone would say I couldn't do something mundane and then like, oh, you can't wash the dishes. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to wash these dishes. You can't you- stop me. <laughs> Are you having a couple beers before you do that? As long as you say I'm not supposed to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're not supposed to drink and do dishes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Scott, don't do it. <laughs> The Moderna and Merck vaccine combo cuts melanoma recurrence. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, The Wall Street Journal, Reuters, CNN, and CBS. On Tuesday, Moderna and Merck announced their co-developed personalized skin cancer vaccine based on individual tumor DNA significantly reduced skin cancer recurrence in patients with phase 3 or 4 melanoma who had tumors removed in surgery. Patients who took a combination of Moderna's mRNA vaccine technology and Merck's already approved Keytruda immunotherapy saw a 44% reduction in relapse and death compared to those who only took Keytruda. This comes after Merck agreed to jointly develop and sell the treatment in October, sharing costs and any profits equally. Keytruda, a so-called checkpoint inhibitor, is designed to disable a protein called Programmed Death 1, or PD-1, that helps tumors to evade the immune system. The roughly 150-patient Phase II trial began in 2019, with some patients receiving up to nine doses of the vaccine, given every three weeks in combo with Keytruda, for up to 18 cycles. The trial was delayed after the pandemic prompted Moderna to repurpose some of its cancer vaccine manufacturing to create COVID shots. The company said that serious treatment-related adverse events occurred in 14.4% of patients who received the vaccine combination, compared to 10% in those who only received the immunotherapy, adding that Keytruda already has some known side effects. 
Shares of Moderna jumped 23% in midday trading on Tuesday, with Merck shares seeing a nearly 1% jump. A Phase 3 trial is expected to start next year, the final round before the companies submit the drug to regulators. Thanks for those facts on this health story, Melissa. We have a Narrative A from Washington Post. Cancer vaccine research hasn't been very successful due to cycle times taking too long, which is why this study is such a breakthrough. The use of mRNA technology not only allows a quicker process, but a personalized one in which individual patients' tumor DNA can be used to attack specific cancer cell mutations, harming their immune systems. And Narrative B is written by Frontiers. This is all positive news, but we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves over just one headline. While promising, potentially successful cancer vaccines like this face many challenges and are still years away from being rolled out. Further research is needed. Our final story comes from Israel, where gene-edited hens only lay female eggs. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Times of Israel and BBC News. On Tuesday, researchers at the Israeli Agricultural Research Organization, led by Dr. Yuval Cinnamon, announced the development of genetically engineered hens that lay eggs that hatch only females, an advancement that scientists say may prevent the suffering of unwanted male chicks in the future. The hens, who carry Z and W chromosomes, had their Z chromosome genetically engineered by scientists. The eggs laid by the hens, called Golda hens, are then exposed to blue light, activating the edited DNA. When exposed, the males, made up of two Z chromosomes, stop developing, while the female eggs continue on as normal. This is significant for both economic and moral reasons. Male chicks cost more to care for than they would ever sell for as meat, and as a result, they're often culled. The Golda hen's female eggs that hatch will lay table eggs. These females aren't genetically modified as they inherit the unedited W chromosome from the mother and the untouched Z chromosome from the father. The team, which has yet to publish the research as it plans to license the science, reportedly worked in tandem with UK-based animal welfare company Compassion in World Farming. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that final story. Narrative A is written by the Jewish Chronicle. As a result of the human cultivation of chickens and eggs, a stomach-turning 7 billion male chicks are killed each year because they hold no commercial value. If genetically engineered hens help prevent unnecessary loss of life and boost egg production, then it's the right route to take. And Narrative B comes from The Collector. The process of genetic engineering is a moral double-edged sword. The opportunity to end the slaughter of innocent animals is undoubtedly a good thing. However, editing the genetic code of a living being is unnatural and could have unforeseen consequences. Cool. Yeah, it's cool. Science is cool. Feels like a little Jurassic Parky, like this won't work out, right? Because uh, life uh, it will, yeah, finds it, a way, right? Oh, right. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff Goldblum. Yes, uh, these might end up eating us, uh, maybe from uh, the inside out. Uh, Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, December 14th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. 
For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.